I'm not the pastor at this church. Pastor Tim is in New York City, and I'm here preaching. I, he made his plans accordingly, I guess. I don't know if, he, if I'm preaching because he's there or if he's there because I'm preaching. You'll decide that in about 30 minutes. So we are finishing up the book of Esther, finishing up the entire series this morning. So let's go ahead and have you turn to Esther chapter 9. And while you do that, I'm going to tell you a very quick little story. So earlier this year, when Pastor Tim began the series in Esther, I so love the book of Esther. I so love it. And so I mentioned to him during Sunday school, hey, PT, that's great we're doing the book of Esther. I'm really excited to see where it's going to go. And he said, you know, we were talking back and forth, and he mentioned, yeah, we should get you up there preaching sometime. I thought he was kidding. <laughs> and then about a month later, slipped my mind, an email message arrived, and it said preaching schedule, and I opened it up, and my name was on there. <laughs> oh. And my response, well, I literally, my reply to him was, I thought you were kidding. <laughs> so here we are, Esther chapter 9. Um, you do have some handouts. We'll get to that eventually. So this morning, we're going to do three things, three things. First, we're going to close out the book of Esther. Then we're going to look at a bit of a summary of the book of Esther, because when you close, it's good to go back and kind of summarize the whole thing. And then we're going to do the tough part, which is application. How do you apply such a book to our lives today? So are you ready? I've got to get rid of these remotes. Pardon me. Space. I need my space here. Okay, Esther chapter 9. Pastor Tim led us through the beginning of chapter 9 last week, and we can summarize it with chapter 9, verse 1. Right in the middle it says, When the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. And as Tim pointed out last week, the rest of chapter 9 is primarily details of how the Jews defended themselves. Remember, we had these, these competing edicts, one from, from Haman and one from Mordecai. The one from Haman, which called for the destruction of the Jews, and the edict from Mordecai, which allowed the Jews to defend themselves. And so that played out last week in our story. And so then we read in verse 17, there's a bunch of numbers here. And by the way, extra credit question for you. This sermon is brought to you by the letter P and the number 2. <laughs> the extra credit is... You get to figure out where those occur. Keep your eyes open. Okay, verse 17. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that day a day of feasting and gladness. So what was on the 13th? That was when the Jews defended themselves. It was on the 13th day, and on the 14th they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. That was the Jews in the country. Verse 18, but the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th to defend themselves and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a day 
as a holiday and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. So in the country, they gathered on the 13th, and when midnight came, woohoo, we survived, we have triumphed. They celebrate the day after. Simultaneously, I believe without coordination, the Jews in Susa, who gathered two days, because Esther asked for that second day, that's an interesting thing, isn't it? Gathered for two days to defend themselves. When it was over, they also celebrated. So there were two separate days, depending on whether you were in the country or in the city. So now we pick up in verse 20. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far. So the first lesson of Esther is how to pronounce this king's name. I prefer the NIV where he is called King Xerxes. <laughs> king Xerxes. It turns out Ahasuerus is the correct pronunciation as far as this non-Hebrew-speaking person can muster. But you know what my favorite pronunciation is? Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus. Look at the spelling. You'll see I'm right. It's Ahasuerus. <laughs> because this man is a hazard to us. Hazarus. So Mordecai recorded these things, sent them to all the Jews in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews had gotten relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday. You see those reversals? That they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. So this, these celebrations were spontaneous. They happened because of the joy in the hearts of the Jews at their preservation. It happened in the country. It happened in the city. I get the picture of kids jumping on the bed, right? Mordecai then writes this official letter. Now, Mordecai was the one who authored with, with Hadassah or Esther's help. He authored the second decree that gave the Jews the right to defend themselves. So now he goes and he records the results of that. So what happened? Because the Jews in the country don't know what happened in Susa. And those in Susa don't know what happened in the country. So Mordecai captures it and he sends it out to inform them of what happened, to summarize the reason for it, and to tell them, I want you to keep jumping on the bed. They have already started this celebration and he wants that celebration to continue year after year as a remembrance. Verse 24, now we get into a spot where the author of Esther so far has been telling us about the events that have happened. Now the author kind of steps back and begins to give a commentary about what they've written for our benefit so that we can understand things a little bit better. This begins in verse 24. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them, and it cast per, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that this evil plan, 
that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they call these days Purim, after the term Pur. So a couple things I want to point out here. There's a little sandwich here. There's a theme you're going to see in, in this. There's a little sandwich where in verse 24, we see Haman actively creating a plan. Then verse 25, we see the king giving orders in writing. Wait, that's not what happened. Who wrote those orders? It was Mordecai. The king gave him a ring. Mordecai and Esther wrote the orders, stamped it with the signet ring of the king, sent it out to all the... It wasn't the king that did that. One of the themes of Esther is God is hidden. And I believe that here the author of Esther is trying so desperately to give credit to God without calling out God's name. Because ultimately it was God who made this reversal, and it was God who placed Esther in a position where Mordecai could be elevated, where the two of them together could write this second decree. But the author, in keeping God hidden, can't give credit to God directly. That would violate the rules of writing the book. So what's the author do? They pin it on King Ahasuerus, who did nothing. Can you see the irony in that? It's just right below the surface. It's almost like a wink and a nod where the author says, oh yeah, and the king, lost my place here. The king sent out these orders, gave these orders in writing. Well, it came under his authority, but it wasn't him. And then we have this deal with the term pur, and the term purim. So this book was written by a Hebrew. Who was it written to? Hebrews. What language did they speak? Hebrew. Who was buried in Grant's tomb? Grant. Okay, yeah, we break the pattern. It was written by a Jew for Jews, written in the language of the Jews, but yet he's explaining the origin of the word Purim. Kind of strange. Turns out Purim is not a Hebrew word. Pur is not the Hebrew word for lot. The Hebrew word for lot is goral, G-O-R-A-L. And that's what's translated everywhere else in Scripture. This word pur is Persian. They borrowed the Persian word for lot, and then they stuck the I-M ending on it. Oh, reversed. They borrowed pur and they stuck the I-M ending on it. I-M is plural. I am in Hebrew is a plural ending. So they took this Persian word, they stuck a plural ending on it and turned it into a Hebrew term. But because it wasn't part of the Hebrew language, the writer feels the need to explain it so that people would understand why in the world this festival is called Purim, Purim. Why is it called Purim? It's because Pur from the Persian language and Im from the Greek language, uh, from the uh, Hebrew language. You have a handout and a clicker that doesn't work, of course. Ah, uh, we're going back. There we go. At the very top of your handout, there you go. So Purim is a celebration 
remembering God's care. The purpose of it was to remember what God had done, how he had saved his people. So we pick up in verse 26, the second part. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and all that they had faced in this matter, what had they faced in this matter? They had had a death sentence on them for months. On November 14th, that wasn't the day, I'm just picking that. On November 14th, you're going to die. Live with it for the next several months. That's what they were facing. So because of everything that was in the letter, what they had faced in this matter, and what had happened to them, how did it turn out? They didn't die. They gained mastery over their enemies. Because of all that, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined with them that without fail they would keep these two days according to... How many days? They would keep these two days according to what was written at the time appointed every year. So every year, two days of feasting. That these days should be remembered, be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city. And these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. So there are a number of Jewish holidays. This one is kind of unique. It didn't come from God being handed down. It wasn't the priest that said, Hero Israel, remember these days. Mordecai doesn't wear priestly garments. His claim to fame is he happens to be an official in a Persian court. This came from the people. They invented it. They spontaneously, spontaneously began the celebration, and they obligated themselves. Two days of celebration. And they say that this should be commemorated forever. Purim. So, is Purim alive and well today? Who knows the answer? Yes, it is. So what's it like today? Well, Purim is celebrated in March. That's where Adar 14 and Adar 15, they line up with the end of March. And the way they figure out which sections of Israel are going to be involved in which of the celebration days is based on, I don't know, they came up with this, this, this method that says, the cities that were walled in at the time of Joshua, they're the equivalent of Susa. So they celebrate on the 15th. Everywhere else is on the 14th. So that means Jerusalem, Hebron, and Jericho are on the 15th. The other places are on the 14th. Don't ask me what happens if Purim lines up with Sabbath, because what happens is they have to split it up, because you have to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. There's a whole set of rules for this. So what do they do on Purim? Well, they read the book of Esther twice. They read the book of Esther twice. And it's a very unique reading. Most readings are solemn. You open the scroll, Someone who's qualified reads that scroll, and the people listen. Not this day. They bring noisemakers. I read an account of one man that brought a tuba. <laughs> I mean, noisemakers. And when they read this book of Esther, every time the reader says, 
uh, Mordecai, they cheer. Every time he says Haman, they boo and they hiss. They'll write Haman on the bottom of their shoe so they can stomp his memory out. So every time they hit the word Haman, they're stomping and booing. You know how many times Mordecai's name appears in the book of Esther? It's over 50 times. So a buddy of mine back in Vermont, his name was Art, Art Berenbaum, he was Jewish, and he was one who actually read the, I think they call it the Megala, is, is the, the phrase they refer to it, the scroll of Esther. He's the one who read it, and I said, Art, what's it like to read it? He said, well, you have to pause. So he'd be reading, da-da-da-da, and Mordecai, because, yeah, 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 so, he said, you have to pause, because people, they'll, they'll get engrossed in the story, and they'll forget to do their cheering and booing. Okay, so they read the book of Esther two times. Um, one of the things that's, that's common with, within uh, uh, Ju Judaism, and it's actually kind of the same with Christianity, they have the law, Torah, which is relatively short. Then they have the commentary, which is the Talmud. And the Talmud is huge compared to the Torah. So the Talmud, which is commentary, rabbinical commentary, gives guidance about how to celebrate Purim. And it includes such things as, you are expected to give gifts of at least to give gifts of money to at least two poor people. You were just saying gifts of two kinds of food to one person. Um, they dress up in costumes. Why costumes? These could be biblical characters. They could be uh, uh, strong women characters, uh, women superheroes. It could be the child from Mandalorian. It could be whatever costume you want to. You dress up in costumes. Men, women, children, out on the streets in costumes. Why? Because one of the themes of Esther is hidden. Esther hid her Jewish identity. And God is completely hidden throughout the story. So that notion of hiding comes out in wearing costumes. Of course, you can't have a celebration without food. Any good Baptist knows this. Um, one of the things that they do is they eat these little triangular pastries, little kind of pocket-shaped hamantaschen. They're also referred to as Haman's ears. <laughs> there, is, there is some talk within Jewish folklore that before Haman was placed on the spike that his ears were cut off. Yeah, I'm not sure that's completely true, but that is something. And these little triangles, if you hold them up, they do kind of look like ears. Um, they're typically filled with um, um, poppy seed, traditionally, or they'll have other little pastry fillings, sweet or maybe savory fillings. So they have hamantaschen, and they have a meal, and you can tell this is not a Baptist celebration because this meal involves alcohol, drinking. You heard me talk about the Talmud. The Talmud has guidance for this. And it says, your obligation is to drink, to mellow yourself, which is a euphemism for being drunk. You are to drink to the point that you are drunk enough that, quote unquote, you don't know the difference between blessed is Mordecai and cursed is Haman. Like I say, this is not a Baptist celebration. So that's Purim today. It is still celebrated. Um, as I understand, it took a bit of a hit with the Holocaust. That that was something that really 
challenge the faith of the Jews, that if they are celebrating this feast because of God's provision and God's protection, six million Jews being killed in Nazi Germany was a challenge. So I'm not sure that they celebrate it with as much fervor as they once did, but it is still celebrated. So there's Purim. Back to our text, verse 29. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Hashuverosh in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed and their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. So the, the verse 29 is an awkward verse. And the, the reading in the ESV is awkward because the ESV seeks to not interpret the Hebrew more than necessary. The NIV, however, seeks for clarity. And if you look at this verse in the NIV, I don't have it up here for us, but if you look at it in the NIV, it makes it pretty clear that what happened here was that Esther wrote a letter to confirm what Mordecai had already sent out. Um, so back in verse 20, Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to the Jews who were in the provinces. Verse 29, Queen Esther wrote letters with Mordecai's assistance, confirming Purim. And the letters that she wrote were sent to all the Jews, comma, to the 127 provinces. Mordecai wrote to the Jews. He was a Jew. Esther is Queen Esther. She has a Persian title. She wrote to the Jews and to the provinces, writing to a wider audience, including the Persians, to say, yes, we're going to celebrate Purim. So here we see an interesting connection between Esther and Mordecai, the two of them working together, always working together. Very interesting how Esther holds up the power of women and the importance of women in leadership. And I think there's a lesson there for the church. I'll say no more about that, but I think there's a lesson there for the church. So then, to finish out the book of Esther, we end up with all of chapter 10. I will not attempt to read it with one breath, but I bet I could. King Ahasuerus, oh yeah, remember him? The king imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. And all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? So Mordecai, or, or, uh, Ahasuerosh is brought in as a bit of an afterthought. We're reminded of how much he controls. He imposed taxes on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. So he's got this large region he's able to tax. But then it goes right back to Mordecai, how great Mordecai is. You'll find the greatness of Mordecai recorded right next to the greatness of Ahasuerus 
in the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia. I have no idea if those chronicles are even in existence anymore. But if they are, and if you read Persian, you could go read all about it. Then verse 3, for Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. <coughs> so there was a water bottle up here. <laughs> And I said I wouldn't need it. <clears throat> hey, that slide shouldn't be there. Oh, no, <clears throat> that slide should be there. <clears throat> so you remember last week, Pastor Tim showed this great image, right? And he made a point, see across the top there, that these boxes are reversals one for another. So those first two, <coughs> the one on the left, in the beginning of Esther, we looked at how great uh, the king was. And here at the end of Esther, we look at how great Mordecai is. The next one down, we've got, oh, I can't read it from up here. Ah, yes. On the left, you have Haman being raised to power. On the right, you have Mordecai being elevated. And it continues down the row. So you see that Esther is a collection of reversals. Collection of reversals. But there's another part of this which I just love. It just makes me smile. <clears throat> Not only is Esther a collection of reversals, the book of Esther itself is a reversal. We start on the left with the greatness of the king, with the elevation of Haman, the rolling of the dice, planning with Esther and Mordecai, a banquet, and then in the middle, the sleepless night. It's like you're falling over a cliff down into a dark pit, and you can watch the layers of rocks as you go down, and it gets darker and darker as Haman rises to power, and things look more and more bleak for the Jews. And then we have this magical, wrong button, this magical sleepless night, which is just hilarious. Mordecai is supposed to be killed. Haman wants him dead. Haman goes to the king, and the king ends up not listening and saying, hey, what should I do for the man? That, that I want to honor, and Haman thinks it's him, so he says, do all these great things, and the king says, yes, do that for Mordecai, right? Then we're out here, in, in, uh, sorry, in the middle here, with Haman parading Mordecai through the street. Haman was the one the Persians were supposed to bow down to. Now he's leading the horse, and on the horse is his bitter enemy, Mordecai, and he's proclaiming how great Mordecai is. Haman went home devastated. He was totally embarrassed, completely mortified by the event. Thank you. I was hoping that wouldn't fall flat. But then what happens? He goes home to his wife. His wife says, you're not going to prevail against the Jew. And while that was happening, 
the eunuchs come to take him to the banquet. Wait a minute. He went to the first banquet. He's taken to the second banquet. And things just go downhill as the reversals begin to happen and everything, that curve starts going back up. As if you're falling into a great pit and all of a sudden at the bottom, a giant eagle grabs you and begins pulling you up out of the pit. And you see those same sights and the light becomes lighter and things become clear and you can see safety coming as all of these reversals begin to happen. So not only is this a book about reversals, the book itself is a reversal because the author wants us to understand that Esther contains a story that God is God of reversals. So here, you get to write in your notes now. Esther is a God of reversals. Esther uses flawed people, or I should say God, the book of Esther, God uses flawed people. Esther is my example of that. How good of a Jew was she? There's no indication that she uh, kept her diet kosher. There's no indication from her of prayer or, or uh, uh, celebrating any, any of the ceremonies. There's no indication from her of other Jewish activity. She never talks about God. Um, I don't know how to put this delicately. She lost her virginity in the bed of a Persian king who was not her husband. That is not being a good Jew. Yet, she's the vehicle through which God saved his people. God uses flawed people. God remembers. Haman's referred to as Haman the Agagite. That's a reference back to King Agag, who was the king of the Amalekites. The Amalekites were the first people to attack Israel as they came out of the Exodus. And God said, ah, 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 you don't touch my people. Amalekites, you're toast. You're going to be wiped from the face of the earth. It took hundreds of years, but God remembered. And here he finally brings it to pass. And this fourth point, God is providentially present. It's really two points. God's providence reigns supreme, and God is present. Just because you don't see him doesn't mean he's not there. And if he's there, he's always working. If he's working, he's there even if you don't see him. God is providentially present. And I kind of want to add another bullet point to this. I want to add and they lived happily ever after. Isn't this a feel-good story? You've got the big smiley arc, all these reversals, God taking care of his people in ways that they never would have thought possible. It's not just Mordecai who was saved, but all the people. And it just makes you feel good. God's got this. He's in control no matter what I'm going through. Point number four. He's providentially present. I'm not alone, even if I feel alone. He's providentially present. Doesn't that feel good? Or does it? I would like to suggest that the book of Esther is actually a little more complex than just a feel-good story. And that there's a lesson here 
much in the way that God is everywhere in the book, but is hidden, that there's a lesson about providence. Providence is everywhere in the book, but there's a lesson about it that's hidden, and that's what I want to look at now. So there's this man named John Piper. He's got this book. What an understatement. I think it's 600 pages long. It might be seven. Tracy, you're reading portions. It's like six or 700 pages long. The title of the book is Providence. We are not going to cover Providence to that level this morning. But here's what he says about the difference between sovereignty and providence. Sovereignty is his right and power to do all that he decides to do. Providence, however, includes what sovereignty doesn't. Providence is sovereignty in the service of wise purposes. So, this is like, this is like, like grape nuts. You have to kind of pour the milk on and let them expand to see what's there. Providence is sovereignty in the service. So, sovereignty in action. In the service of wise purpose. Sovereignty in action for a purpose guided by wisdom. There's this guy named Keith Darwin. He is not a famous guy and does not have a 700-page book on providence. Here's my summary. Sovereignty is power and authority. You've got the power and you've got the authority. King Ahasuerosh is a bit of a model of this, although he was limited. Once there was a law written from the Medes and the Persians, it couldn't be overturned. He didn't have ultimate power and authority, did he? Providence adds purposeful action to sovereignty. Purposeful action. So now what I want to do is I want to go back to the book of Esther. Now we're not going to read the whole thing. Just consider what we've heard from the standpoint of how did providence play out? My first example is Mordecai. How did providence work out for Mordecai? He was preserved, wasn't he? There was a threat against him, a threat against his life. And because of God's providence, that threat was reversed. Mordecai was elevated. He was placed, ended up becoming second of importance within the kingdom. Not only that, because of these events, Mordecai and his people experienced triumph over their enemies rectifying a problem that had been there for hundreds of years. And then Mordecai was remembered forever as a hero. So that's back to that feel-good aspect, isn't it? What about Haman? How did providence work out for Haman? He lost his prestige. The one to whom the people were supposed to bow ended up leading a horse through the streets. He lost his prestige. He lost his power. He was taken to the second banquet. He didn't go, he was taken. And while he was at that second banquet, he was stripped of his powers. His ring was removed. He lost his position. He was no longer where he was in the government, and 
he was groveling in front of a Persian queen. Let me phrase that. He was groveling in front of a Jewish woman begging for his life. That's not Haman. But yes, it was. He had lost his position. He lost his very person because he was planted on a pole. It didn't even end there. He lost his possessions. They were taken and given to Esther, who gave them to Mordecai. He lost his posterity. How many sons did he have? Ten sons. Every one of them was killed. There's no posterity for Haman. You're not going to read about Haman's son or grandson being a high official. And he was remembered forever as a villain. So how did providence work out for Haman? Not so well, huh? Not so well. So in the, the story of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, there is a, uh, a little scene that everybody loves where Lucy is talking with Mr. Beaver about meeting Aslan. Lucy thought Aslan was a person. Turns out he's a lion. And she upon learning that Aslan is a lion, her response is, oh, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. Now that was theology wrapped up in literature, which is a beautiful thing. But there's a concept there that I think applies here with providence. Providence is not safe. Providence might work for you, the path of Mordecai, or it might work against you, the path of Haman. And I believe that Esther asked the question, what are you going to do? What are you going to do in the face of this thing that could be a threat to you? How are you going to position yourself to put yourself on the path of Mordecai and not on the path of Haman? I assume you would prefer to be on the path of Mordecai. How do you get there? How do you get there? So we're going to take a little journey to Acts chapter 2, stopping at Luke in Luke along the way. So turn with me to Luke 22:22. Brought to you by the letter P and the number Luke 22:22. Which by the way, this whole two theme is is a providence thing. The next few verses I picked out I want to look at all happen to have twos in them. I didn't pick that. I didn't write this stuff. It's just where they happen to be. Providence. So Luke 22, 22. Jesus says, actually, if you back up at 21 to set the scene, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. So this is the upper room. They're having the Last Supper, and he's referring to Judas. 
The hand of the one who betrays me is with me at the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. That's providence. Providence. What does Isaiah 53 say? It pleased the Lord to crush him. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So even though providence says Jesus has to go to the cross and die, it doesn't let Judas off the hook. He's still on the hook for it. Okay, Acts chapter 2, verse 22. So now this is after Jesus is, is, is dead. He's been raised again. Day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God comes upon the apostles and the church begins. And this is Peter with his first sermon, which, by the way, was much shorter than this one, wasn't it? Um, 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the, def to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So here we have another little providence sandwich. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan of God, providence. You crucified him with the hands of wicked men. Free choice, people's free choice. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. Providence once again. So we've got this situation where, again, the people in the middle who did the activity are sandwiched by providence on both sides. Does that mean they get let off the hook? Flip the page. Verse 36, Peter clarifies. He says, let all the house of Israel know, therefore, for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? That's the question of Esther. It's not just feel good. Don't get me wrong, it is feel good. But it's not just feel good. It's not just all things work together for good. It's all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes, for those who love God, right? Providence demands a response. There's Romans 8.28. For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. What if you don't love God? What if you're not called according to his purpose? What does providence bring you? Loss of position, power, loss of your person, loss of posterity. It brings you the letter P to the nth degree. So how do you make sure you're on the path of Mordecai and not on the path of Haman. Peter answers that. 
Verse 38, the answer is so simple. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That's it. That's the choice before us, before me and before you. Do I want to be a Haman or a Mordecai? Do I want providence to be a threat in my life or a blessing in my life? It's a choice. What do you choose today? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your providence, for your ever-present care for us. You not only know every detail of each of our lives, but are in control of those details. No roll of the dice can thwart your plan, for they land as you have chosen. So often, we are totally unaware of your action on our behalf, partly because you choose to stay hidden, and partly because we choose to remain blind. Open our eyes, Lord. Open our eyes to your intimate, detailed, providential working in our lives so that our faith may grow and our trust in you may increase and that we may give you the glory due your name. Father, we recognize that there are some in this room for whom providence is not a guarantee of good. People who are apart from you whose sin and lack of repentance keeps them away from you. Father, send your spirit. Spirit, soften our hearts. Convict us of your sin and bring us to the point of surrender to you and to your work in our lives. Give us the courage to choose repentance and in so choosing to find the strength and ability to repent. Give us confidence to know that in our lives, all things will truly work together for the good because we love you and are called according to your purpose. Give us the strength when your providence brings hard times. Let our faith not be shaken, but let it grow as we know that you are totally and completely in control. Thank you for Jesus' sacrifice, which has made all of this possible. In his name we pray, amen.